Okay, good to see you all. If you have a Bible, could you turn to Joshua chapter 20? Joshua chapter 20, that's where we're going to go in just a moment. We are getting through the book of Joshua. We will finish it. There's only a few chapters left. We're going to do the whole of chapter 20 today and then come back to it um, later after our break. Now, Melanie just said that we've got a couple of weeks when we're not meeting. We've got the Catalyst Festival, then we've got the Fun Run doing it. Now, the Fun Run in a couple of weeks' time in Sutton Coalfield is a huge event uh, in the life of the town. I don't know if anyone, has anyone ever been involved in it or seen it or just kind of like aware of the Fun Run? that runs in the town. It's called the Great Midlands Fun Run. And as far as I'm aware, there are 7,000 runners. People come from all over the place to run this. And then they've got a whole bunch of people from the town and friends and family who turn out to watch, which is probably another 7,000 or maybe more who line the route to do it. So it's quite a thing in the town. A lot of people come out. A lot of people watch it. And I've run it for the last few years. We put in teams from the church and I've been involved. And I think this might be my fifth or sixth time. And the interesting thing is once you've done it before, you get a certain familiarity with it. So I now know in my mind the route of the run. It's 8.5 miles. And where we run around the town, I know. I know we start right in the center of town, the bit, the pedestrianized kind of shopping bit. That's where all the runners start. We're actually off down one of the side roads because we're, we're now pushing stuff and they won't let us go with the normal runs. We have to start at the back. So we get stuck down the side and we're going to have a dinosaur this time. But that's where you begin. And then you start by going up the hill past Trinity Church. You go all the way up past the fire station and then you turn a sh- a left at the crossroads and there's your first water point. Whew which is good when you've gone all the way up that hill. From there, when we head down towards um, Towngate, we pass the, leisure, uh, the youth centre where we used to meet. Then we go past the leisure centre. Up there, we take a right, head down Monmouth Drive, down towards Boldmere Gate. And there's the big roundabout outside Boldmere Gate. We turn into the park. We're now in Sutton Park, second water point. Very important to be aware of this. Then we take that long, slow climb. Who knows the climb from Boldmere Gate all the way up? the hill there to the car park at the top. We do that. Then we head down to the Jamboree Stone right in the middle of the park. We take a right there, come back on ourselves down the hill, down into Towngate. Towngate's a good place because they have, usually have people with hoses spraying water on you. Another water point, loads of people there, but then, then you have the climb. From Towngate, you then basically climb for several miles up. You go up to the Bistro, who knows the bistro? You're not allowed to stop at the bistro. It'd be nice to, but you have to then keep going. You then go up what they call Cardiac Hill. Who knows Cardiac Hill? Going up Cardiac Hill, you have to go all the way up to the top of Cardiac Hill. But the good thing is at the top of Cardiac Hill, there's another water point. So you can have another drink. Then you get to come out the park, you take a right, and the good news is, who knows what happens at that point? It's all downhill. It's about 1.5 miles to finish there, but it's all downhill back into town. So if you can make it that far, you know that actually you're on the downward run, and if you can get there, you think, we, we've made it. It's just, it's just, i just got to keep going downhill, 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 all the way to the, uh, the finish, the start where you began, and then you get your medal, and it's all over. And having run the course before and know it, now when you run it now, you think, I know where I'm going. I know what's coming, I know where the finish is, I know where I'm heading, and I know what happens when I get to the end, I get my medal, I get my bottle of water, I get the adulation of the crowds, which lift me as I kind of come in, and you get that sort of, yes, I know where I'm going, and because I know where I'm running to, it makes the whole thing a lot easier. And what we're going to look today is this question of where are you going to run to? 
Where will you run to? Because what we're going to look at today is something that was put in place um, when Joshua took the land. It was an opportunity for people to run somewhere, especially if things went wrong in their life. And so what we're going to look at is that today. Where are you going to run to? And I want you to think about that question in your life. Where do you run to? When things go wrong, where do you run to? When things come upon you, where do you run to? Do you know the destination? Do you know where you're heading when it happens? Do you know where that place is to go? Because what we've got to in the book of Joshua, so far, we're up to chapter 20 now. So we've done the first 19. And we've seen the first five chapters of the book, there was this preparation phase. The people of God were coming to the land that God had promised hundreds of years before. They were going under the leadership of a man named Joshua. And they'd come to land, and the first few chapters of the book is the preparation, spying out the land, checking out what's there, a few things going on. God speaks to them and says, you've got to be strong and courageous, you've got to follow my word, follow my law, stay close to that, and then you'll be able to take the land. They met this lady, Rahab, when they went into the land, who was a foreigner, a pagan, a woman of ill repute, but yet she repented. She put her faith and trust in the God of Israel, and she helped the people of God, and spoke to them, and, and protected the spies and they crossed the Jordan River and they finally entered the land as promised and it was all preparation for what was going to come ahead. Then we looked in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 which they call the warfare phase which is the people of God taking the land that God has promised them, driving out those who would hate God and stand against it and we saw the defeats of Jericho and Ai in particular and we saw the, the, the problem, the defeat as well when sin got into the camp. We saw the renewal of the covenant and then the northern southern campaigns where they took the kingdom for um, God. And then what we get now, we're now into the section called the inheritance, where basically they've finally taken the land. This was the land that was promised to Abraham, so it was hugely significant. And we looked at six chapters in one go, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, about the land being divided up and given to the various tribes. And finally, the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis was being fulfilled hundreds of years later. It was a time of celebration. It was vital. And then just last week, we looked particularly, Matthew looked at one particular inheritance from a man named Caleb, who had been through this whole process and seen what God had done and how God had given his inheritance. And so now we're going to look at chapter 20. I'm just going to read it to you. So we put it up on the screen. Okay, follow along in your Bibles if you've got one. Okay, then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the city gate of, and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslay into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the Tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. 
These are the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. All right, big idea today. Mercy and grace are available to all who run to God's appointed place. Mercy and grace are available to all who run to God's appointed place. Let me just kind of give a context for this chapter. Okay, the land has been divided up. Chapter 20, chapter 21 is the designation of cities. We see the cities of refuge in this chapter. The following chapter that we'll look at next is the Levitical cities to the tribe of Levi. They did not get any land They just got cities, and we'll look at why that was and what that's about next time. And these are instructions that were given to Moses. So that's what it mentioned in the passage. So that going back many, many years, Moses was long kind of dead. The people, the leadership had transferred over to Joshua, but these are something that God had spoken to him about. And if you go back into the book of Exodus, they first appear in Exodus 21, where God says, you're going to designate these cities of refuge, and they are a provision for someone who has killed someone accidentally or unknowingly. We might call it manslaughter. He's saying, actually, that's what's going to happen. That's what these cities are for. Then if you track through the books of the law in Numbers a couple of times, in Deuteronomy, they come up again and again where Moses is talking to the people about it, saying, when you get into the land, you need to do this. He says there's going to be six cities selected. There's going to be three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side of the Jordan spread throughout the land. And in uh, later passages, he actually tells you what these cities will be. These are the ones, these are the ones. And so what is happening here is there is obedience to God's word. What was spoken through Moses, even though he is dead, he has passed away. The people haven't forgotten what God has said through him. They've taken it seriously. So now Joshua, they've got the land. He's saying, actually, I'm now going to fulfill the word of God to Moses, which is still binding on us now, even though Moses is gone. It's God's word, so we need to fulfill it. So there is obedience here, which is the theme that has run through the book of Joshua. We saw that right in chapter 1. Joshua told the people... Sorry, God told Joshua, he told the people, be strong and courageous. In what? In obeying the word of God. Do not let the word of the Lord depart from you, he said. Keep it right close to you. And so what Joshua is literally doing now, he is fulfilling God's word. God said it way back, you do this. Okay, I'm now going to do it. We're going to designate these cities. So let's have a look at the passage. The first part of the passage, first three verses, are just general instructions to um, the people. And he says, he references there what was happening in Moses. So that's linking back Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he's basically saying, if someone happens to kill someone else by accident, unknowingly, they are going to flee to one of these cities. This, this could happen a couple of ways. They could kill someone unknowingly through negligence, by not taking proper care. There's actually an example given in Deuteronomy quite an interesting one, of an axe head. If someone is chopping with an axe and as they fling back, the axe isn't very good and the head flies off, big metal head, strikes someone and they die, that is an example of negligence. You didn't mean to do it, but yet there is now someone who has died. You are responsible. You weren't taking care of your tools or what you were doing, but that's the example that's given and saying, actually, so this is happening. So, so if this happens, this is, what, this is one of the examples. Another one could be ignorance. They just weren't aware of you know, what they were doing. 
um, they're aware that aren't, their actions were sinful and someone has died as a result. In both cases, the individual is guilty. There is someone dead. They are guilty of something. Someone's got to be held accountable. You can't just have dead bodies all over the place. But they want to take into account the situation when this isn't premeditated murder. There is a difference. Premeditated murder is one thing. Unintentional, unknowing killing is something different. We designate differences in our own law today. They aren't the same. Um, but they, they are treated differently. Um, and there was very severe crimes for premeditated murder. That was actually the death penalty back in ancient Israel. But actually those who would do it unknowingly, there was different, um, a different crime that was set out by God. And you have this character, turns up, called the Avenger of Blood, which sounds, re- it sounds like a bit superhero-ish, but probably not a good superhero if you're an Avenger of Blood. But this was just a title used for a close relative of the victim. A close relative of a victim who was then responsible for making sure that punishment was served, that justice was done. That they were actually saying, wait a minute, the person who's died is a relative of mine, part of my family, my extended family. I am now responsible for making sure the perpetrator is brought to justice that they face the punishment for their crimes. So it sounds quite dramatic, um, and you think they wear a cape or something, but actually, no, it's just a close relative who was then to do it. And we actually see it's not just in the case of death, it was also in the case of redemption of land, that if um, the land had fallen into um, to debt and the land had been sold off to someone else, the, the, the close relative was responsible for buying back the land and making it sure it stayed within the family, within the inheritance as given by God. And we actually saw this last summer. We looked at one particular booth, uh, book of the Bible where this is played out massively. It's one of the major themes. Anyone remember what it was? Book of Ruth. That's right. Because Boaz was going to redeem Ruth. But what did he say? Actually, there was a closer relative who's more responsible Actually, they're the one who's meant to do it. They fit that role, and there was a back and forth, and actually they didn't want to do it, and then Boaz did it, he redeemed, married Ruth, fantastic story. But that's the same idea, that family relative taking responsibility for those in their family and making sure everything is done rightly in accordance with the law. And so that's who this character for the Avenger of Blood would be. And so if you're that person um, you were to, who had committed this, um, this deed... They were to flee, they were to run to these cities of refuge which had been set out um, for them under the law. Now this next section, if you look, is specific instructions. If that's verses 4 to 6, it says very specific details. What happens to the individual in this situation? You do something, the axe head flies off when you're chopping wood, it kills the person you're working with. Oh my goodness, what do you do? There are three very specific things. It says they are to flee, they are to stand, and they are to speak. The first one is they are to run. They are to flee. They are to go to the nearest city of refuge. There were six, and we'll look at where they were in a moment, but that's what they were to do. They were to flee. They were to go and find refuge somewhere. That's what they were to do. One of the reasons for that was to get away from the family relative who might be tempted to just mete out their own justice and just say, you just, right, we'll get a mob, we'll get a posse, we'll come after you and do just as bad to you again. And it doesn't give justice an opportunity to be sorted out what actually happened. It doesn't give anyone an opportunity to speak in defense or in condemnation of their actions. So the person was to flee. The second, it says they are to stand or appear 
Because once they arrive at the city of refuge, there was the gate of the city, the entrance to the city. And at the entrance of the city, you'd have the elders of the city. The kind of the older, wiser men who would be responsible for kind of arbitrating justice within the city. There would be a kind of a court there and they would talk about that. Again, where do we see that? In the book of Ruth. That's where Boaz had to go. He had to go and talk to these people to the city and say, look, there's an issue here. I need to talk to you about it. You need to give your wisdom. We need to work it through kind of out in public. And so this is what the, the person would do. The man say would have to flee the city, go and stand before the elders. And the final thing, it says they were to speak. They were to present their case. This is what happened. It was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't want them to die. This is just it's a terrible tragedy. And they get to speak their case and other witnesses could be brought and it could kind of be worked out in that situation. It would also provide a place of safety from the avenger who would come after them and actually want to see justice done. And it would give a forum for it to be happened kind of legally and above board. And what we have here is the presumption that we have in our own legal system today is that someone is presumed innocent until they're proven guilty. It's not the other way around. There is an innocence and say, okay, we can actually prove it. Where, what's the evidence before any sentence is passed? And then it says the person was to remain in the city. And it says they were to remain in the city until they'd had a chance to make their case and defend their innocence. So they were there and the city's responsibility was to provide refuge for them. And they knew that was their role because they were one of the designated cities. If someone come, we have to provide refuge. We have to protect them from any you know, outside influence who would come. And it says, if they were found innocent of murder, and actually it was only manslaughter, it says they had to stay in that city. They could not return home until the death of the high priest. So Israel had a high priest who ministered at the tabernacle, which was the tent, which was the dwelling place of God, later the temple in Jerusalem. And the high priest was the ultimate representative of the people before God. The first high priest was Aaron, and then you see a succession of them through the historical books of the Bible. You see it. But that was it. They were to stay there until the death of the high priest. And only then could they then return to their city. So there was, even for those who were innocent of murder, there was still a kind of, um, there was still a consequence of their crime, what they had done. And they had to wait in the city. Then the final few verses there are the city, these cities of refuge are set apart. And we see six cities listed. There are three on the west of the Jordan, three on the east of the Jordan. And the first ones are the ones listed on the west of the Jordan. And if you notice where they are, if you look on a map, they're actually listed north to south. You've got Kadesh, that's in the north of the territory. It, then you get Shechem, which is in the middle the central area of the land, and then Kirith Arba is in the south. So on one side of the Jordan, you've got one in the north, one in the middle, one in the south. Then you go to the east side of the Jordan, you've got Beza, that's in the south, Ramoth is in the middle, and then Golan is in the north. So effectively, you've got the river down the middle, and you've got three cities on either side of the, um, of the river within the territory. And what it meant was... They've worked out that none of these cities were more than one day's journey from anywhere in the land. Which means wherever you were in the promised land, the inheritance that God had just given to the people of Israel that Joshua just parceled out, you were never more than a day's journey from refuge. If something happened and you found yourself in that position, you were only a day's journey away from safety. You were only a day's journey away from actually I can have my, court, my, my case heard 
kind of fairly legally and not just be a victim of kind of any vigilante justice or kind of emotional vengeance that was coming. But also notice at the end of that passage, this was a law provided not just for the people of God. What did it say? It says those who are sojourners and the stranger. That means anyone who is coming into the land, who's being part of it, were also provided the same protections legally as the people of God. So it wasn't just for, the, just for us, for our group, and we don't care about anyone outside. The, the justice of God actually prevailed over anyone who was in the land, no matter where you came from, what your background was. If you found yourself in this situation, you had a place to run to. You had a place where you could go and find help and refuge. So what did this tell us? There's three things I just want to draw out from this. What did this section, this law kind of teach us a bit about God and what what he was trying to set up for the people of God at that time? The first one, it highlights the importance of justice. The importance of justice. God is a God of justice. He wants right to be done. He doesn't want miscarriages of justice or he's not into revenge or vindictiveness of society. He wants justice to be served rightly in all situations. And for the cities of refuge to serve their purpose well, a tragedy had to have taken place. If no one died accidentally, then there would be pointless having them. But actually, we know in this fallen world that actually that, thing, that kind of thing does happen. And there had to be places where people can go. And the loss of human life is utterly tragic when it happened. Men and women are made in the image of God. And when anyone dies, it is a terrible thing. We weren't designed that way in the beginning. Death was a foreign thing that came into the garden and that we live in the consequences of. In the new heavens and the earth, it won't be there. But actually, we have it here now. And so it's incredibly a tragic situation. And what this law does, that the fact that they've got these cities, it prevents further loss of life just through out of an emotional response. The close relatives decide, well, you've killed my brother, father, cousin whatever it is right I'm just going to take it back out on you we act emotionally when someone wounds us someone hurts if there's suddenly a death in your family you want to cry out for vengeance you want something to happen and God is a God of justice and so he wants right to be done and he's essentially saying two wrongs don't make a right that person could have died tragically under a horrible accident you don't get to go and kill the dude just to make yourself feel better it doesn't work like that and so there is a protection for the guilty from the avenger wrongly kind of putting forth what they think is justice. Maybe it's just a revenge. But it does also put a mechanism in place where the case could be heard. Actually, were they guilty? Were they actually trying to off this person? Or was it just some horrible, tragic accident? And so the individual was brought before the court. They were pre- uh, presumed innocent until proven guilty. And the evidence would be brought and weighed before judgment was passed. Because that's the way it should be. And God is a God of justice and he wants that to happen. The second thing we can see is the importance of mercy. God is merciful. And he loves to show mercy, compassion and forgiveness to those who are afflicted. To those who have done wrong. We are all recipients of it here today. So the provision of the law for the guilty to run to and find that is an example of God's great mercy It says in Psalm 145, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. 
This is God's heart for those who are suffering, those who are in pain, those who are the victims of tragedy, those who are ones who've witnessed tragedy happening outside in their family. His desire is for mercy on everyone. And the final thing it says, it shows us, is the importance of refuge. The importance of refuge. We all need places of refuge to run and flee to at times. We all need places to go where we can just be kind of accepted and heard. We all need places to go where mercy and grace and compassion and forgiveness are offered to us when we have messed up and things have gone terribly wrong. We need those. And before a holy God, we're all guilty of willful rebellion. We aren't the manslayers. We're the ones who've committed premeditated murder. We're the ones who've rebelled willingly, knowingly, abused God, defied God, belittled God, done everything we can to say, no God, we are not interested in you. We don't want you in our lives. We don't want your interference. We might, de- might have denied his existence at some point. We might have profaned his name. We've done all those things wrong. And we need places of refuge to come. So what happens in these situations? Well, it says in that passage, towards the end there, it's a kind of a a funny bit. It says, you can stay in that city until when? The death of the high priest. That's kind of an odd thing. Why would you have to wait till the death of the high priest? Firstly, you're not sure when that's going to happen. And what about the poor high priest? (laughs) You know, you're like, oh, well, I'm just waiting for you to die so I can go home. You know, how are you feeling? Do you know what I mean? Not the best thing, but actually, it's a picture, it's an image. It's pointing to something forward. It's pointing to something that's going to happen. The death of the high priest, in effect, atoned for the sin of the manslayer. And who's the great high priest? Hebrews says it's Jesus, isn't it? And Jesus came to the earth. He lived the perfect life. But then he was offered up in our place to die. He was the one who died in our place. He was that perfect sacrifice. And his death atoned for our sin. His death atoned for our mistakes, his death toned for our rebellion, whether it was committed willfully, knowingly, or ignorantly, or through ne- neglect. All those things. Jesus died in our place for our sin. He was the great high priest. And so what we see here is we see a picture of the great atonement that comes through Christ, that is offered to all. That actually, if you run to him, he is a place of refuge. If you run to him, you will find grace and you will find mercy and you will find forgiveness. And it's not just for those who've committed unintentional things. It's actually for the willfully guilty and rebellious and those who have belittled God and hated God and rejected God time and time and time and time again. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me. Because he is a God of grace and mercy and compassion. And his blood covers our sins. All we need to do is repent and run. We need to recognize our sin. We need to flee to a place of refuge. And I think intuitively the world seems to know this, that we've got a situation, something in us that needs to be dealt with. Because the world offers places of refuge, places where you can kind of have your sin, guilt, atone for. Sometimes they call it therapy. 
You just get to go and talk to someone about it, which might be useful and has its place, but actually does that really deal with the problem? No. What about those who someone says get involved in a good cause or a political activity or something, like you're contributing back. People use it almost as a way of atoning for the things that they've done. Well, actually, if I do this, I'm trying to be a good person and make the world a better place, which again has their place, but it doesn't deal with the issue. We are sinners. We have fallen short of God's glory. We are rebels. We aren't manslayers. We are murderers who've done everything we can to rebel against God. And he's saying, no, you need to run to me, run to me, run to me. Come to me and find a place of refuge. And so the question for us today I want to leave you with, which is the one I started, is where are you going to run to? Where are you going to run to? If you're not a believer here, you're not a follower of Jesus, then you are guilty. You are a guilty sinner, the Bible says. You are a rebel against God's holiness. You are under God's wrath, it says. You're under his judgment rightly, not because he's vindictive and vengeful, because you have failed in so many areas. But the good news is that he offers you a place to run to where you can find grace and mercy and forgiveness. You can find righteousness and hope and peace. You can have a relationship with your Father in heaven. You can have a relationship with Christ. You can be full of the Holy Spirit and you can have new life in him. If you're not a believer here, I tell you, run to Jesus. Run to him. I'm going to make an offer. I'll come and talk to me at the end of the meeting when we're singing in a moment. Come and meet with him. We'll pray with you. We'll talk to you. We want you to know him for yourself, that you can be saved and become a follower of Jesus. What about if you are a Christian here? Well, we need to remind ourselves of the truth where we started that you're a rebel, that you, have, you are guilty of sin, you're guilty of an offense to God, and you are rightfully under his judgment. Yet the punishment was poured out on Christ, so you didn't have to face it. You've been shown grace and mercy and forgiveness by God. The righteousness of God has been given to you, and your sin has been taken away. You now stand righteous and holy before him. You've been given a place of refuge, the people of God, the church. That is your family because you've been adopted into it and God is now our Father. We have a place of refuge to which we are heading, the new heavens and the new earth, where there'll be no more crying and no more suffering and no more tears and no more death because this old order has passed away. We have a place to run to. And so I'm asking you now, if you're a believer, do you know that? Are you running towards that? Are you going towards that? Are you heading? Is the trajectory of your life that way? Are you being distracted by other things? Are you letting other things get in the way of where you should be heading? Are you letting other, getting other things in the way that are taking you off course? Are you playing with sin in your life that will distract you? Are you tending to go over here and say, I'd rather be interested in that than running to a place of refuge, which is Jesus? Are you coming to God and seeking his grace and his compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness in times of suffering and pain? If you know you're dabbling with sin and you know it, you need to come to him for forgiveness. 
If you know you're going through suffering right now, time is hard and the things are kind of getting on top, you need to come for his compassion, his mercy, his peace, his grace. Be full of his spirit again. Whatever it is, whether it's a work situation or a relational situation or a family situation or a financial situation or just a health situation, whether that's a physical one or a mental one or an emotional one, you need to come to him. He is the place of refuge. He's the only place you can run to. And often as the church, we tend to leave that to the end. Let me try this. Let me try my own wisdom. I'm pretty smart. I know what to do. Let me try, well, I'll go and talk to this person. I'll go and talk to that person. I'll go to the dogs, which aren't bad. They've got their place. But actually, first and foremost, where should we go? Jesus. He's the one we should be calling out to. He's the one we should be praying for. He's the one we should be looking to in our small groups and our premiers and saying, come on, we need to run to Jesus. We need to ask him to pour out his grace and his mercy on us. And so what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to pray. I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to give you an opportunity to run to him. I'm going to give you an opportunity for you to ask for what it is. Ask by faith. That's all it means. Just ask by faith. Say, God, I want this. Give his grace on us. So why don't you do that? Do you want to stand? Can the band come up? I'm going to lead us in a moment of prayer and then we're going to sing. And we're going to do it in this order for a reason. I want us to pray, I want to ask, but then I want at the end, I want us then to respond in worship and praise because we have this place of refuge. The other thing that struck me about these cities is they didn't deserve them. They're guilty. You don't deserve that. God's grace has given them. He said, I'll provide this in the law. I will provide a way for you to be cared for, to find refuge when things go wrong. We don't deserve this, but God has graciously given it to us in his son. So maybe you want to close your eyes. I'm just going to pray. You know what your situation is. You know what you've been thinking about it. It's been in your mind. Maybe you want to just bring it before God now. Name it. Be specific. Say, this is it. This is my thing, my work situation, my family situation, this sin I'm involved in, this stuff. Just name it. And then ask for God what you need. Just ask for what you need. Forgiveness, grace, uh, mercy, compassion, peace, healing, wholeness, whatever it is. Just ask him for it. If you're not a believer here, this is an opportunity for you to talk to God. He's here. He's listening. He wants to, he wants to, to, to be in relationship with you. He wants to know. Just talk to him. Tell him that you need forgiveness. Tell him that you need wholeness, that you need cleansing. Tell him that you want to know him. You want to follow him. Thank him for all that he's doing in you, bringing you here to hear the good news. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you and I want to praise you for the cities of refuge. I want to thank you for what they represent to us. As a, we have a place where we can go. And it's not just a place we have to physically run to. It's a place we, just, we respond to in faith. Right here, right now, wherever we are. We want to thank you for the people of God that we stand amongst. Of others who are in the same boat as us. They're no better, they're no worse. They're just like us. We thank you that. We thank you for the eternal city that we are heading towards. Where one day we'll be with you forever. We thank you for that privilege and that and that kind of future that we look forward to and Lord Jesus I pray now you'd come and you'd fill your people I pray you'd fill us with your spirit 
I pray you'd fill us with your peace, your compassion, your wholeness. Lord God, I pray, you, I pray you'd fill us with hearts of thankfulness for all that you've done. That as we worship now, as we sing, and you might say more stuff to us, that's great. We want to be open to that, God. But let us be a worshiping people who look to you, who praise you. If you've asked for forgiveness today, I can say with confidence that if you have sought forgiveness, God has forgiven you. Because that's what it says in the Bible. You repent and you, you've received that. So rejoice in that. If you've sought for grace and mercy, I can say with confidence, he will give that to you. He will pour it out on you. If we ask for his spirit, he pours it out. He doesn't withhold it. He's not like that. God is good and he has so much to offer you today. Lord Jesus, we want to say we love you. We praise you. God's people said.